Chapter 8 of Science in Short Chapters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melanie Young. Science in Short Chapters by W. Matthew Williams. Chapter 8 the philosophy of the radiometer and its cosmical revelations so much speculation and not a little extravagant speculation has been devoted to the dynamics of the radiometer that i feel some compunction in adding another stone to the heap my only apology and justification for so doing being that i propose to regard the subject from a very unsophisticated point of view and with somewhat heretical directness of vision, i.e., quite irrespective of atoms, molecules, or ether, or any other specific preconceptions concerning the essential kinetics of radiant forces, beyond that of regarding such forces as affections or conditions of matter, which are transmitted radially in constant quantity, and therefore obey the necessary law of radial diffusion or inverse squares. The primary difficulty which appears to have generally been suggested by the movements of the radiometer is the case which it seems to present of mechanical action without any visible basis of corresponding reaction. A visible, tangible object pushed forward without any visible pushing agent or resisting fulcrum against which the moving body reacts. This difficulty has been met by the invocation of obedient and vivacious molecules of residual atmospheric matter, which have been called upon to bound and rebound between the veins and the inner surfaces of the glass envelope of the instrument. How is it that the advocates of these activities have not sought to verify their speculations by modifying the shape and dimensions of the exhausted glass bulb or receiver? If the motion of the radiometer is due to such excursions and collisions, the length of excursion and the angles of collision must modify its motions, and such modification under given conditions would form a fine subject for the exercise of the ingenuity of molecular mathematicians. If their hypothetical data are sound, they should be able to predict the relative velocities or torsion force of a series of radiometers of similar construction in all other respects, but with variable shapes and diameters of enclosing vessels. If we divest our minds of all visions of hypothetical atoms, molecules, ethers, etc., and simply look at the facts of radiation with the same humility of intellect as we usually regard gravitation, this primary difficulty of the radiometer at once vanishes. The force of gravitation is a radiant force acting somehow between, or upon, or by distant bodies, and these bodies, however far apart, act and react upon each other with mutual forces, precisely equal and exactly contrary. We conceive the sun pulling the earth in a certain direction, and receiving from the earth an equal pull in a precisely contrary direction and we have hitherto demanded no ethereal or molecular link for the transmission of these mutually attractive forces. Why, then, should we not regard radiant repulsive energy in the same simple manner? 
If we do this, there is no difficulty in finding the ultimate reaction fulcrum of the radiometer veins. It is simply the radiating body, the match, the candle, the lamp, the sun, or whatever else may be the source of the impelling radiations. According to this view, the radiant source must be repelled with precisely the same energy as the arms or pendulum of the radiometer, and it would move backward or in opposite direction if equally free to move. If, by any means, we cause the glass envelope of the radiometer to become the radiant source, it should be repelled, and may even rotate in opposite direction to the veins, or vice versa. This has been done with floating radiometers. Viewed thus as a simple matter of fact, irrespective of any preconceived kinetics of intervening media, the net result of Mr. Crook's researches become nothing less than the discovery of a new law of nature, of great magnitude and the broadest possible generality. That is, that the sun and all other radiant bodies, i.e. all the materials of the universe, exert a mechanical repulsive force in addition to the calorific, luminous, actinic, and electrical forces with which they have hitherto been credited. He has shown that this force is refrangible and dispersible, that it is outspread with the spectrum, and is most concentrated or active in the region of the ultra-red rays, and progressively feeblest in the violet. Or, otherwise stated, it exists in closer companionship with heat than with light, and closer with light than with actinism. According to the doctrine of exchanges, which has now passed from the domain of theory to that of demonstrated law, all bodies, whatever be their temperature, are perpetually radiating heat force, the amount of which varies, caturis paribus, with their temperature. If we now add to this generalization that all bodies are similarly radiating mechanical force and suffering corresponding mechanical reaction, the theoretical difficulties of the radiometer vanish. What must follow in the case of a freely suspended body unequally heated on opposite sides? It must be repelled in a direction perpendicular to the surface of its hottest side. If two rockets were affixed to opposite sides of a pendant body and were to exert unequal ejective forces, the reaction of the stronger rocket would repel the body in the opposite direction to its preponderating ejection. This represents the radiometer vein with one side blackened and the other side bright. When exposed to luminous rays, the black side becomes warmer than the bright side by its active absorption and conversion of light into heat, and thus the blackened face radiates in excess and recedes. We may regard it thus as acting by its own radiations, or otherwise as acted upon by the more powerful radiant whose rays are differentially received by the black and bright sides. These different modes of regarding the action are perfectly consistent with each other and analogous to the two different modes of regarding gravitation. When we describe the sun as attracting the earth, or otherwise, the earth as gravitating to the sun. Strictly speaking, neither of these descriptions is correct, as the gravitation is mutual and the total quantity exerted between the sun and the earth is equal to the sum of their energies, 
but it is sometimes convenient to regard the action from a solar standpoint and at others from a terrestrial so with the radiometer and the strictly mutual repulsions between it and the predominating radiant it appears to me that this unsophisticated conception of radiant mechanical repulsive force and its necessary mechanical reaction on the radiant body meets all the facts at present revealed by the experiments of mr crookes and others the attraction which occurs when the disk of the radiometer is surrounded with a considerable quantity of atmospheric matter is probably due to the inequality of atmospheric pressure the absorbing face of the disk becomes heated above the temperature of the opposite face the film of air in contact with the warmer face rises leaving a relatively vacuous space in front this produces a rush of air from back to front which carries the radiometer vane with it when the exhaustion of the radiometer is carried so far that the residual air is only just sufficiently dense to neutralize the direct repulsion of radiation the neutral point is reached when exhaustion is carried beyond this repulsion predominates taking mr crook's estimate of the mechanical energy of solar radiation at 32 grains per square foot 200 weights per acre 57 tons per square mile etc and accepting these as they are offered i e merely as provisional and approximate estimates we are led to a cosmical inference of the highest importance one that must materially modify our interpretations of some of the grandest phenomena of the universe although the estimated sunlight pressure upon the earth the three thousand millions of tons is too small a fraction of the earth's total weight to affect an easily measurable increase of the length of our year the case is quite otherwise with the asteroids and the zones of meteoric matter revolving around the sun the mechanical repulsion of radiation is a superficial action and must therefore vary with the amount of surface exposed while that of gravitation varies with the mass thus the ratio of radiant repulsion to the attraction of gravitation goes on increasing with the subdivision of masses and becomes an important fraction in the case of the smaller bodies of the solar system a zone of meteorites traveling around the sun would be broken up sifted and sorted into different orbits according to their diameters if this superficial repulsion operated against gravitation without any compensating agency gravitation would be opposed in various degrees neutralized and in the case of cosmic dust even reversed comets presenting so large a surface in proportion to their mass would either be driven away altogether or forced to move in orbits utterly disobedient to present calculations this would occur if the interplanetary spaces were as nearly vacuous as the torsion instrument with which mr crookes made his measurements regarding the properties of our atmosphere only in the light of experimental data irrespective of imaginary molecules and their supposed gyrations or oscillations we see at once that an interplanetary or interstellar vacuum 
must act like a sprinkle pump upon our atmosphere, upon the atmosphere of other planets and upon those of the sun and the stars, and would continue such action until an equilibrium between the repulsive energy of the gas and the gravitation of the solid orbs had been established. Atmospheric matter would thus be universally diffused, with special accumulations around solid orbs, varying in quantity with their respective gravitating energy. Such a universal atmosphere would accelerate orbital motion, and this acceleration would vary with the surface of bodies, its action being thus exactly opposed to that of radiant repulsion. It must, at a certain density, exactly neutralize it. That it does this is evident from the obedience of all the elements of the solar system to the calculated action of gravitation. And thus Mr. Crook's researches not only confirm the idea of universal atmospheric diffusion, but they afford a means by which we may ultimately measure the actual density of the universal atmosphere. If, as I have endeavored to show in my essay on The Fuel of the Sun, the initial radiant energy of every star depends upon its mass, and its consequent condensation of atmospheric matter, the density of interplanetary atmosphere sufficient to neutralize the radiant mechanical energy of our sun may be the same as is demanded to perform the same function for all the stars of the universe and all their attendant worlds, comets, and meteors. In order to prevent misunderstanding of the above, I must add that I have therein studiously assumed a negative position in reference to all hypothetical conceptions of the nature of heat, light, etc., and their modes of transmission, simply because I feel satisfied that the subject has hitherto been obscured and complicated by overstrained efforts to fit the phenomena to the excessively definite hypotheses of modern molecular mathematicians. The atoms invented by Dalton for the purpose of explaining the demonstrated laws of chemical combination performed this function admirably, and had great educational value, so long as their purely imaginary origin was kept in view. But when such atoms are treated as facts, and physical dogmas are based upon the assumption of their actual existence, they become dangerous physical superstitions. Regarding matter as continuous, i.e. supposing it to be simply as it appears to be, and coextensive with the universe, in accordance with the experimental evidences of the unlimited expansibility of gaseous matter, we need only assume that our sensations of heat, light, etc. are produced by active conditions of such matter analogous to those which are proved to produce our sensations of sound. On this basis, there is no difficulty in conceiving the rationale of the reaction which produces the repulsion of the radiometer. I may go even further and affirm that it is impossible to rationally conceive radiation producing any mechanical effects without mechanical reaction. If heat be motion and actual motion of actual matter, mechanical force must be exerted to produce it in a body which is warmer on one side than the other, i.e. which is exerting more outward motion-producing force on one side than on the other, must be subject to proportionally unequal reaction, and therefore, if free to move, must retreat in a direction contrary to that of its greater activity. 
regarded thus the residual air of the radiometer does act not by collisions of particles between the vein and the inside of the glass vessel but by the direct reaction of the radiant energy which would operate irrespective of vessels i e upon naked radiometer veins if carried halfway to the moon or otherwise freed from excess of atmospheric embarrassment the recent experiments of mr crookes showing retardation of the radiometer with extreme exhaustion seem to indicate that heat rays like the electric discharge demand a certain amount of atmospheric matter as their carrier i cannot conclude these hasty and imperfect notes written merely with suggestive intent without quoting a passage from the preface to the correlation of physical forces which though written so long ago appears to me worthy of the profoundest present consideration it appears to me that heat and light may be considered as affections or according to the undulatory theory vibrations of matter itself and not of a distinct ethereal fluid permeating it these vibrations would be propagated just as sound is propagated by vibrations of wood or as waves by water to my mind all the consequences of the undulatory theory flow as easily from this as from the hypothesis of a specific ether to suppose which namely to suppose a fluid sui generis and of extreme tenuity penetrating solid bodies we must assume first the existence of the fluid itself secondly that bodies are without exception porous thirdly that these pores communicate fourthly that matter is limited in expansibility none of these difficulties apply to the modification of this theory which i venture to propose and no other difficulty applies to it which does not equally apply to the received hypothesis End of chapter 8 Recording by Melanie Young